Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Hello, and welcome to All the Things. This is the show where we talk about all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. I'm Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. And once again, we are joined remotely. Monique is still just tucked away in Elisa Childers basement. How are you doing, Monique? I am doing well. Welcome everyone to All the Things, the show where we talk about all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. Um, tonight and every night helping us out on our show is Bob Bontrager, Bob the Button Pusher Bontrager, helping us behind the scenes. Thank you so much. Yes, it's technology is pretty amazing that we can be in uh, all these different locations and be able to do the show. And I want to tell uh, let people know that we are live tonight. So they are, if you are watching us during the live stream, you can jump on and let us know you're watching and ask questions of us and the guest um, as we go through the conversation. In fact, I always like to check out like who's who's watching us, who's checking in. And um, Elaine is there and Alyssa and Susanna, Linda Davis is, are there. So everyone's jumping on. We are live. So thank you for joining us. Yes. And a big thank you to Elaine Voss and Jennifer Beidel for being our moderators tonight. Our show is sponsored by Impact 360, Birmingham Theological Seminary, the Center for Biblical Unity, Family 210 Clothing, and Theology Mom. So check out all of those websites to find out more about supporting important ministries that are doing work to further the kingdom of God. Yeah. And make sure that you share the show, like the show, interact with the show. The more that you interact with it, the more that it helps the bots send out the message, helps us overcome shadow banning because they often don't like what we have to say. So why don't you give us a quick update, Monique, uh, what has been happening for you this week? <laughs> I'm just living with the childers, you guys, I am like the the niece that they didn't know they needed living with them. Okay. <laughs> I have permanently moved in. I have I've unpacked like I am here. You have here clothes in the closet. This I is have clothes in the closet. The dog greets me in the morning. Like we we are definitely intertwined. Um I have gosh, I am I'm I feel like I've made good progress. Um, yeah. So for those have, who didn't tune in last week, tell them what you're doing there in the so children's basement. I am in the children's basement. Aside from eating lovely baked goods, I am also here um, to get to get further along in my book writing process. So in LA. I'm at the office and there's a bunch of things that are happening. And so one of the things that wasn't happening was a lot of time for me to write the book. So Krista and I decided that it would be best if I actually did a writing retreat. And so I will be living with the Childers for three weeks and it'll be three weeks in total. I'm just writing. I spend a solid seven to eight hours every day just writing, um, reading and writing and 
just working on the content for our book to be able to turn that into our publishers. Super grateful for the time that I'm able to have here. Super grateful for the Childers and just the fact that they've opened their home to me, um, you know, because I'm just here and then I pop up and pop in, you know, and then I'm. Did you, you ever like go my... out of the basement? You ever like. Go I do. And... <laughs> I do. I do. And um, hang out with the kids and talk with the Lisa's husband, you know, play with the dog. It's just, I'm just adopted in. And so super grateful, but that's what I'm doing here and I'm really enjoying it. Very good. So, yeah. How have you been? I miss you. Well, I miss seeing your face. Uh, yeah, no, good. Uh, I'm doing all the things that you told me to do while, you, while, while you're away, like all the tasks that you left for me, I haven't screwed anything up yet. That the all the bills have been paid and and everything's good. So thank <laughs> you. We appreciate it. Do my we best. Do. Um, did the family meeting this week? Uh, so no, it's going good. And I am also working on my chapters, doing revisions and helping you. You know, if get stuck or whatever, just jumping in. Like okay, let's let's get unstuck. So just trying to crank it out, and um, it's. It's uh, great to to be in it with you. So that's what I've been doing. And I am grateful. <laughs> All right. You ready to get started? Yeah. Well, we've got a very special guest tonight. Yes. Uh, and, you know, I uh, hopefully I, I don't embarrass her, but, uh, you know, she uh, we were talking a little bit before we went on the air here. And, uh, you know, when you think about someone of Nancy Piercy's caliber, I mean, really, she is. Uh, just such a veteran in the on issues of philosophy she's she's been around and she she's I call her the 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 godmother of women apologists she was really the pioneer before the rest of us in in making a trail in these areas and um, her voice is just so important the things that she's researched over the decades uh, she's done such pioneering work on issues. And I think the topic that we're going to talk about tonight is no exception to that. Okay. Do you remember in 2020 when she tweeted about the Center for Biblical Unity? Just about knocked me out. Okay. Was, so like we had it existed for five minutes, you know, and she was tweeting about you. I was okay. like, working in apologetics for 25 years she probably doesn't know me from adam you you just came on the scene and nancy piercy's tweeting about you how is this well, happening <laughs> for people who don't know who may be new um i had i had just moved home from south africa in 2018 and was trying to figure out what life was going to be and you know we started the center for biblical unity but i came out of a progressive background so that being said, I didn't know anything about C.S. Lewis. I didn't know anything about Francis Schaeffer, Nancy Piercy. Um, these were names that n not even like, oh, you know, I've heard of them, but I'm not really sure who they are. I had never heard of like these like important, super important names. And so I so clearly remember that you were sitting in the chair in the living room and I was passing by and you were like, no way. Oh my goodness. Nancy Piercy just tweeted about you. And I said, oh, that's cute. And I kept going upstairs. And no, she was, I might as well have said some random person just tweeted about you. You had no idea. I had no idea. And so 
then people were like, like, because my name was tagged and things like that, people started to jump on the thread and all of that. And so many people came to our ministry because um, of Mrs. Piercy's tweet about us um, and about the ministry and things like that. And I'm super grateful. So then I reached out to her and was just like, hey, thank you so much. And um, over like the course of time, we'll just, you know, let her know I appreciate her. And so then here, little old me, people, little old me, I just sent like a little random note and was just like, hey, I appreciate you. Thank you. And then she was like, I'm writing a book. And I said, what? You're telling me the goods, the good, <laughs> the inner workings. And from there, I was able to actually read an advanced copy of the book. You guys, you guys. So we're going to talk all about toxic masculinity and just all the good things. And so I'm super excited. Yeah, me too. And I think that, you know, it has, this is a topic we've been wanting to do for a long time in the show. It has just become so socially acceptable to express even open hostility toward men. I mean, we see this even in mainstream venues. Um, And, you know, there's, there's a strong sentiment in our country that, um, it's okay to just demean men and punish them almost for just being men. And so I'm really excited to talk to uh, Mrs. Piercy about these issues. So let's let's bring her on. Let's do it. All right. Hello. Hello. Am I supposed to un- unmute now? Yes. <laughs> is, this yes. My, is this my cue? Yes. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Well, it's great to have you back. I'm so glad Monique is on this time so that we could do do this conversation together. Um, I think a great place to start, Nancy, is just what made you write this book? Like what got this issue on your radar? What were you noticing that you said, yeah, I want to invest a lot of time into researching this issue? Well, the trigger really was that I was researching um, some sociological studies of Christian men. And I said, hey, nobody knows this stuff. It's all hidden away in the academic literature. Um, and and we need to know because, because there's been so many attacks on men. And as you know, um, the primary target is evangelical Christian men. Yeah. They're often seen as like exhibit A of men who are toxic, oppressive, patriarchal, and so on, because they believe in some sort of authority in the home or headship, um, to use a biblical term. Um, and so it's they're often targeted as being particularly uh, toxic. And it wasn't hard at all to find examples, you know, to introduce that part of the book. Lots and lots of examples of people saying, uh, both Christian and and secular, saying that if you believe in any form of headship, if you believe in complementarianism, you know you will be abusive. You, it silences women. It oppresses women. Um, it, it's it's uh, it's so common. And the sociologists, there were some some of them who said, "Well, wait a minute. Where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? Uh, is there any evidence for these charges?" And so, over the past several years, there have been sociologists who decided, "Well, let's do some studies." Um, the largest one and the one that I rely on the most, I have about a dozen different sociologists, but the one I rely on the most is uh, Brad Wilcox, who's at the University of Virginia. He's considered like maybe the top marriage sociologist in the country. And he did a study in which he found 
that uh, it, it's quite a large study. It's, it fills a whole book. It's not just an academic paper. Um, and what he found was that evangelical Christian men who attend church regularly, in other words, you know, they're actually committed, they're actually li living it out, uh, test out as being the most loving to their wives. You know, they spend the most time with their wives, their wives, um, the wives repeat, they, of course, they, they interview the wives separately, which is important. Um, the women report feeling uh, loved and appreciated at, at higher rates than other women. These men are more involved with their kids in terms of shared activities like sports or church youth group. Uh, they're more involved in discipline, like setting screen time, putting uh, limits on bedtime and so on. They also have the lowest rate of divorce of any group in America, and they have the lowest rate of domestic violence of any group in America. And not even Christians know this. I, mean, I, I tell this to Christian audiences, and they kind of sit back and say, what? We have no idea that Christian men are testing out so well. Um, and objective empirical research. In other words, uh, Brad Wilcox is not even an evangelical himself. He's Catholic. So it's not like he has a dog in this fight. Uh, he just, with his own, you know, objective research, found that evangelical Protestant, he makes a point, Protestant, evangelical Protestant men test out as the most loving fathers, the most loving husbands, the lowest rates of divorce and domestic violence. In fact, in fact, let me give you a quote, because um, I have some notes here, and I want he was actually quoted in the New York Times. That tells you somewhat about how um, how prominent he is, that he's, uh, even though he's um, a, a conservative Catholic, he gets quoted in places like the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN and, and Slate and so on. Anyway, he was quoted in the New York Times, um, and he said this, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives, Fold 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. The happiest wives in America are religious conservatives with conservative gender values. Nobody expected this. And I'm surprised the New York Times was willing to print it, to, to be honest. Hmm. So, so this is amazing. I that's this was sort of the trigger for writing the book. I said we, I, we need to get this out. We yeah. need to encourage Christian men that they are actually doing a really good job compared to you know the average American man. So that that was the trigger. Yeah, that's so good. And I want to have Bob put the graphic up so people can start pre-ordering the book. Um, and uh, it's called "The Toxic War on Masculinity: How Christianity Reconciles." the sexes. It's going to drop at, toward the end of June, June 27th. So now's the time to go pre-order. And by pre-ordering, you'll also be helping Nancy, you know, get the word out about the book because the way Amazon kind of rigs the system is that it, it bases the, um, the algorithms based on the pre-orders. So if you like this kind of content, pre-ordering, is a great way to support and send a clear message to publishers. Hey, we like this kind of content. Um, we want more research uh, that explores these important questions that other people aren't looking at. So that's a very practical way for you to help 
um, in in that way. And so, Nancy, as she, I guess what strikes me about this is that the the messages about Christian men in particular, even by the what I'm going to call the Christian media, often gives us the impression that Christian men are kind of the worst. <laughs> They're the most abusive. They're the 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 most um oppressive toward their wives. But that doesn't sound like the picture that the, the research actually brings forward. Yeah, you really have to go digging in the sociological literature to find this. And that's one reason I said I, you know, I've got to bring this out so that people can you know be encouraged. Um and most most of us have heard that Christians divorce at the same rate as the rest of the culture, right? Um, uh, what I've read, in fact, is that's one of the most common statistics that Christian leaders use. I think they're trying to motivate us or something with a negative message. Well, it it turns out that there's an answer to that as well. The sociologists went back to the research and they separated out the men who uh, attend church regularly, you know, the ones who are really committed, over against nominal Christian men. In other words, it, it, people who, uh, on a survey like that, would check the Baptist box, for example, but they actually don't go to church very often, if, if at all. The differences between these two groups is stunning. Uh, nominal Christian men spend are less engaged with their children. They spend less time with them in shared activities or discipline. Their wives rep report the lowest level of happiness. They have the highest level of divorce, even higher than secular men. And they, the real stunner is they have the highest rate of domestic violence, even higher than secular men. So this is why our statistics get so skewed if you combine those two groups, you're going to get a skewed statistic. Uh -huh. um, let me quote Brad Wilcox again. He's my, you know, he's my go-to sociologist on this. He wrote about it in Christianity Today. And he wrote, the most violent husbands in America are nominal evangelical Protestants who attend church infrequently or not at all. So apparently uh, a lot of men you know, we'll hang around the fringes of the Christian world just enough to pick up language like headship and submission, but not get the not get the biblical meaning of those terms. And instead, they inject meaning from the secular world, you know, meaning from uh, secular concepts of masculinity, of you know, entitlement and dominance and so on. And they and they end up actually testing out as worse than secular men. So this is the challenge that uh, faces us as Christians, you know, because these guys are out there identifying as Christians, um, and and yet they're live, living like secular men, and even worse because they use, you know, they cherry pick verses from the Bible to support what they're doing. So the challenge to the church is how do we keep encouraging the men who do attend church regularly? Oh, and by the way, this is another another cool quote from Brad Wilcox. He says, um, "Secular academics should you know give up their prejudices against Christian men." <laughs> I thought that was a good way of putting it. You know, secular researchers, sociologists, psychologists have often said what you just said, Krista, that uh, Christian men are the worst in terms of being overbearing and tyrannical um, patriarchs and so on. Um, 
he says, we need, we need to give up those prejudices. It's just not true. Christian men who attend church regularly test out the best. But the statistics are skewed because there's roughly an equal number of nominal Christian men, and they are they test out as worse than secular men. So that's what we're up against. Wow, that's so helpful. I um I was actually going to follow up with that question of well, I continuously hear that you know divorce rates in the church are the same as in the world. So thank you for that because that really helped to answer a question on you know well if the Christians, those who are attending church and everything like that are, you know, faring out at higher rates than, you know, those in the secular world, how how are the statistics the same? But that makes a lot of sense. Um, in looking at statistics, since that's kind of what we're talking about right now, was there any data or is there any data that let you know that men are in crisis? Because when we're looking at the toxic war on masculinity um, in reading the book, from what I remember, and I, re I read it a while ago, but it wasn't, there wasn't a distinction between the toxic war on, you know, white Christian men or the toxic war on Christian men. It was the toxic war on masculinity overall. And so is there data that supports that there, um, you know, that men are in crisis? What is, what's that data? Yeah, it wasn't hard at all to find, you know, outrageous quotes. <laughs> um, the, the, the Washington Post had an article titled "Why Can't We Hate Men?" Just blatant in the Washington. That's Post. pretty clear. <laughs> Why can't we hate men? A Huffington Post editor tweeted, "My New Year's resolution. My New Year's resolution is to kill all men." Uh, t-shirts. You can you can buy t-shirts that say "So many men, so little ammunition." Oh. Books books have appeared with titles like "I Hate Men," "No Good Men," "Are Men Necessary." And uh, to my surprise, I also found plenty of men denigrating their own sex. Uh, one book author says, talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. And I, you probably saw that uh, when um, James Cameron, the director of the movie Avatar, said testosterone is a toxin that you have to work out of your system. So certainly it's understandable that uh, Studies are showing, surveys are showing that men are starting to say, here's a recent survey, half of American men, about 46%, agree with the statement, these days society seems to punish men just for asking like men. And actually, this was uh, even more recent. This was um, on International Women's Day. There's a survey done in Britain. 55% hmm. of men, so more than half, said, quote, society has gone so far. Society has gone so far in promoting women's rights that it is now discriminating against men. So whether you agree or not, that is a lot of people who think men are now getting a bad deal, you know, that, that, that the male bashing has gone too far. And I think that, Monique, your question is well taken, which is, well, but, but wait a minute, men are actually doing worse today than they have in the past. Men are falling behind on all kinds of metrics, starting with school. Boys are falling behind at all levels of education from kindergarten, you know, through graduate school, you know, in kindergarten, it starts in kindergarten because boys don't sit still and they're not as verbal. They don't have high, fine motor control as much as girls do. So, you know, coloring and using the scissors, you know, they don't do as well. And so they start falling behind even in kindergarten. 
they're falling behind all through elementary school, all through high school. There are fewer men than women in college now. It's about 60-40. 60% women wow. and 40% men in colleges now. And even graduate school, um, more women than men uh, graduate from graduate school and professional schools like law school and veterinary school. So, uh, you know, when when women were falling behind, we poured a lot of money into developing curriculum and programs to encourage girls. And that's wonderful. That's great. The girls are moving ahead and they're benefiting from all that money and all those programs, but there's nothing comparable for boys. And so they're now falling behind. And if, and if you say, well, we should do something for boys, shouldn't we? You immediately get pushed back from a lot of people saying, well, well, men still end up in power. So why should we help? Why should we help them? They still end up as CEOs and presidents and, Fortune 500 company, um, uh, you know, on the boards and so on, and and film filmmakers in Hollywood. But th- that's that's focusing on the maybe ten percent of men who are at the very top. On the average, men are actually falling behind. They're actually more likely to be drug addicted, alcohol addicted, commit crime, be victims of crime. Um, uh, mental illness, and even life expectancy. Men are now, for the last three or four years now, men's life expectancy has gone down while women's has stayed the same. So we need to start asking what's happening to our men um, and how we can, as a society, as a church, how can we start helping men recover the notion of of, of dignity and uh, purpose? Yeah, we totally agree. I mean, the they're saying in the chat, you know, the the saying the future is female. We have a saying at the Center for Biblical Unity: the the future is male and female. The we we will not have a future without mm-hmm. strong men, and this is an important part of the conversation. So, I I think it's great to highlight this. Um. I, I actually, sorry, um, Krista, yeah, I was going to say, Mrs. Piercy, the, what you're saying sounds so much like the conversations that we have just about race. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you know, when when Black students fall behind, um, you know, we create programs and things like that. And, you know, cool, but we wouldn't create the same programs or if we talk about white students falling behind, you know, well, they, they make up on the back end anyway, or they still manage to go farther ahead or, you know what I mean? And so it's, it kind of reminded me of um, a conversation that we would have about race, but in relation to sex. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I even found out when I was writing the book, you guys, you guys might be surprised. I was that this is the most controversial book I've written. You might think my last book would be since it's, touches on things like the hookup culture and abortion and homosexuality, transgenderism. But actually in the Christian world, this book has been more difficult because um, in my classrooms, most of my young female students are feminists uh, who get very triggered. If you say anything positive about men, you know, if you say men are strong, they'll say, well, women are strong too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes, they are. Um, And then my male students get triggered on the other direction uh, uh, when I told my class I was writing a book on um, masculinity, one of my male students shot back, what masculinity? It's been beaten out of us. Mm. So I had a very difficult time writing the first 
chapter because I had to disarm both sides. You know, I had to rewrite the first chapter multiple times. Once they get into the content, most, most of the readers said, oh, this is really interesting, this stuff I didn't know. But I, I had to get them over that hurdle. Um, I had to get them over the hurdle of whose side are you on? Mm-hmm. That was the first question, usually. Whose side are you on? You know, are you bashing men? Are you some feminist, you know, raving feminist who's bashing men? Or are you some, you know, uh, reactionary conservative who's who's defending men? Um, and uh, and I'm, I'm like, wait a minute. As Christians, we're supposed to be in the world, but not of it. We're supposed to be able to rise above these kinds of debates and look at it objectively. I had to plead with my readers. Let's be objective, can we? <laughs> Let's look at the facts. Um, but it was very, very difficult. Um, I, I had to rewrite the chapter to, oh, and when people heard about it, for example, uh, so one of my uh, graduate students was a woman and she told her husband that we were going through this book. I, I went through it with my students in manuscript form. And um, and her, his first reaction was, well, whose side is she on? And the next was, and why is a woman writing a book on masculinity anyway? <laughs> I got those kind of responses all the time. So uh, it, it has been a very, um, it has turned out to be a very controversial book. And uh, like I said, once once people got into it, like the, like the data I just told you about uh, evangelical men, once they got into the actual content, they said, oh, this is, this is great. This is interesting. This is stuff I didn't know. But my goodness, it was very difficult um, to figure out how to present it in a way that I could kind of get past all those barriers. What you're saying really reminds me of um, what we covered on our show last week, talking about standpoint epistemology or um, looking at what social location someone stands in that allows them the permission, basically, to be able to speak into a certain subject. So if you're not a man, can you speak on masculinity? You know what I mean? It, it's it's very it's very interesting how objective truth gets put over here and almost like set to the side before we, uh, I mean, un, until we ask like what are what are the qualifications? Is this person a man? Does this person understand this? What are their social locations? And then once we understand their social locations, then they have the opportunity to speak into a, a, a topic instead of saying, is there objective truth? that can be shared regardless of that person's social location. Well, I get, I overcome that by giving some of my own history. <laughs> um, I in my earlier book uh Lovely Body, I I didn't I I have some of my own stories, but my family wasn't ready for me to go public with them as you might imagine. Um so I said I'm not making that mistake again. I know that we live in the, we live in the age of Oprah where you get your credibility by having been there. And so I actually tell the opening story of um my father was severely abusive. Um he was very physically abusive. And um you know uh in in books and therapy books they ask open hand or closed fist. Well it was closed fist. You know he yeah it was Okay, that's enough. <laughs> so I I tell that story and people, are kind, again, this is a way of disarming people because they could say, oh, you've been there. I could kind of say, I've been wrestling with what is a healthy masculinity since I was a mm. little girl. You know, my whole life, I've been trying to figure out what is a healthy, godly, biblical masculinity. Um, you know, I've had to go through a, tre- a tremendous amount of emotional healing to get to this point. And I have found, you know, Monique, I, I, 
it sh maybe it shouldn't take that. <laughs> we should care about truth for its own sake. But given the culture we're in, I have found that that's helped a lot. I had a, uh, I had a professional writer who was one of my um, endorsers. <laughs> and originally I had my story at the end because, um, it, you know, when I say that uh, nominal men have the highest level of, of domestic violence, even higher than secular men, of course, I, I have to deal with that. Right. I, if I don't deal with that, it'll look like I'm trying to sweep it under the carpet. So I do end the book with two chapters on domestic violence and biblical answers to that. You, you know, if 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 you are married to or in contact with one of these nominal men, um, here's some biblical principles. And I originally had my story. My story seemed to fit there. Right. Uh -huh. And then one of my uh, expert reviewers said, <laughs> he said, he read it and he said, Nancy, this is pure gold. <laughs> I don't really think of my story as pure gold, but you know, I, that's how a writer looks at things like this. <laughs> and he said, you've got to put that at the front. So uh -huh. I did. I did. I took his advice. I moved it to the front because that does establish your credentials these days. So, so that that does help, I think, with some audiences to help say, you know, I've been there. I've worked through this stuff on a very deep personal level. Yeah, I want to go to a comment in the chat on YouTube uh, that Jennifer is making. She says, my son went on a biblical manhood retreat where they said men often choose passivity or inaction because they think this way they, that they, they can't mess up. Um, I'm so sad for our men. And we do need male leadership. And I guess that comment kind of leads me to a question of do you have any thoughts about a biblical vision for masculinity because it seems like there's a few different competing ideas or competing streams even among evangelicals as to what the biblical teaching is on masculinity yeah um of course when i say that nominal Christian men um, are really reading scripture through the lens of a secular worldview, um, then you have to say, well, what is that secular worldview? What is the secular script that our men are often picking up? And so a lot of the book does deal with where did where did the idea of toxic masculinity even come from? You know, what historically have been um, the concepts of manhood? Because uh, it, it started much earlier than most people realize. Um, it's it starts with the industrial revolution because before that men are working with their family all day right family farms family industries they're working alongside their wives they're training their children day in and day out and so men's role was con conceived much more in terms of caretaking um the 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 social expectation on men was much more that they were uh, loving and nurturing and of course they still had to have the traditional male, um, uh, characteristics. They they were making their way, their way in a wilderness, so they still had to uh, resilience, master mastery, courage, because there were always new fields to plow and new towns to build and new businesses to create. So, but but the social expectation was that you didn't do that to get ahead individually. You did that for your family. You did that for your community. Uh, the common phrase back then was that they, men were expected to be fathers of the community. Um, so how did we lose that? Well, in, it started with the Industrial Revolution. 
when uh, work was taken out of the home and into factories and offices, of course, men had to follow their work. And for the first time, they were no longer working with people that they loved and had a moral bond with. They were working in competition with other men. Well, how do you think that affected the male script? Well, men began to feel like they had to be more assertive, more aggressive, you know, look out for number one, you know, make it. Um, and the, this is when the language started to change. You can see it in the literature of the day. People began to protest that men were becoming egocentric and greedy and acquisitive and you know, self-promoting. And they didn't like it. You know, uh, they did not like the change that they were seeing in men. So you, you were starting to get this sort of negative description of men um, already early on in the Industrial Revolution. Um, and there were the other stages. Um, in other words, um, oh, <laughs> it's hard It's hard to um, bring it all together. Let me see how, how I can make this shorter. Um, there's also, um, as men began to work in the public arena, the secularization also started happening, right? American culture became more and more secular. People began to say, well, the public realm should be value-free right? Industry and factories and banks and academia. Well, value-free. <laughs> In other words, people were being told, don't bring your private values into the public realm, which is what we hear today. Right? That's when it started. Well, men were the ones who were working in the public realm and getting public, uh, a secular education, working in a more and more secular workplace. And so men, again, men were losing their commitment to biblical morality. Men became secular earlier than women did because women were not out in the public realm, which was becoming value free. And in fact, if anything, um, people, people didn't want to lose values as they saw this public realm secularizing. They said, oh, wow, how are we going to protect values? You know, people wanted to retain, you know, re religious devotion, love, altruism, self-sacrifice, relationship. Well, those were then relegated to the private realm, to the home. And the church, and who would who would be in charge of them? Women, because women were the ones left at home, and so this is actually the first time in history that women were said to be morally and spiritually superior. Now we're kind of used to that. It's a double standard, right? We now kind of assume that women often are better, <laughs> um, or more moral, or the ones who are supposed to hold the line in dating relationships. You know that the the double standard. This is when it started. Never before in history had women been thought to be morally superior. All the way back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, the insight into right and wrong was seen as a rational insight, and men were thought to be more rational, and therefore men were more moral. And that is what gave them the right to have authority in society and in the home, because they were more moral. In fact, do you know what the Latin root of the word virtue is? Virtue. The Latin root is V-I-R. Do you know what that means? No. It means man. Huh? V-I-R means man, like virile, like the word vir virile. Virtue comes from that same root. So virtue originally had connotations of manly strength and honor. So men were thought to be the virtuous ones. So it was really in the 19th century, America, <laughs> that for the first time, women were said to be superior in terms, especially in, in areas like sex and alcohol. And women were seen to be the ones who were supposed to keep men in check. You know, women were supposed to hold men accountable. Men were supposed to be able to come home and be refined and reformed by their virtuous wives. Well, that 
was not good for relationships between the sexes because um who, who men would what got tired of being painted as the villains <laughs> the, the 19th century was also the time when there were these great reform movements um because men's behavior was growing worse and especially young men young men were coming into the cities right looking for work so they were being separated from traditional structures of accountability like their family their church their village and so young men coming to the cities were much more prone to the vices there like drinking gambling fighting gangs and sex there was a huge increase of brothels uh, saloons taverns and so on and that's why there was a such a movement of uh reform a huge increase of reform movements in the 19th century because men's behavior was growing worse I'll, I'll give you one fact to kind of hang this on 1830 Americans drank more three times as much as they do today America Americans drank three times as much as they do today so there was a reason there was a temperance movement and an abolition movement and what was called the social purity movement, which was against sex trafficking and, um, and prostitution. But the trouble was all these movements also tended to increase the tension between men and women because they all were condemnations of males. I mean, these were all tra traditionally male vices. Nobody had any doubt as who who it was, what sex it was, that was the slaveholders, the tavern keepers, the the clients at the brothels, the seducers, the drunkards. So these reform movements that just mushroomed in the 19th century um, all tended to have a very negative message toward men. So that's where a lot of the rhetoric that we have even today grew up. And, you know, let me see if I can find one quote because it's, uh, I had it earlier um, and it's, it's, such a good eh, I, I don't want to take the time to find it no um, go ahead while you're while you're looking for it I'm gonna okay. say this um you know one of the things that I loved about the book was just how educational it was and how it looked back at like things like the industrial revolution and what happened well quote unquote what happened to the man you know what happened in the family where did the man go and looking at the separation of the man from working in the home working with his wife and kids and work being a family a familial thing to work being what's done outside of the home by the man and women are now with the kids because at that time before the industrial revolution when men and women and kids worked together it was mom and dad raising kids there weren't these um well i'm not saying that there were no roles of distinction but a lot of this um a lot of the roles were simultaneous it was together though the husband and wife both worked and they both raised kids and so what um what you see is that as things as men moved outside of the home a lot of the the movements that you're talking about were spearheaded by women and i i, I don't know i just thought that that highlighting that point and letting us know where a lot of this shift turned or, or, you know, that shift was made was super helpful. And it was so clear to be able to see, you know, this is what it was before and how, when we don't protect something, when we don't, you know, really keep the first things first, how we can lose both that first and the second thing. Good. I did find the quote. So this is a quote by a historian, and um, 
he's actually he's he's paraphrasing Elizabeth Cady Stanton. So, um, but her quote is too long, so I'll give you the shorter quote. He says the early feminists contended that the affairs of government and business had been too long dominated by the crude, warlike, acquisitive, hard-headed, amoral qualities of men, and they should no longer be deprived of the tempering influence of women's compassion, spirituality, and moral sensitivity. So you see the inflammatory language that we hear today is already back here in the 19th century in, in terms of its incredibly negative view of, of men and the, you know, sort of a public, the public attacks on masculinity. It's important for us to know how long it, how long the roots are, how deeply they go back, because you can't deal with something. If, if you think this started in the 60s, you're not going to deal with it effectively. You have to go all the way back and see where it started if you're going to be able to deal with it effectively. I do agree. Krista, were you going to say something? Yeah, I, I think this is really fascinating in, the, in all of the historical context. You know, kind of what comes to mind for me is um, my great-grandparents who were immigrants from Holland, and they came here as farmers. And, um, you know, for them living out on the prairie, they were working together and doing everything together. And it's just natural for kids to want to follow their parents around, mimic what their parents are doing. And that that was kind of how children were raised. It, it was a, a very much a, a team effort. And I remember my grandmother telling me that all the time, you know, when she was growing up on the prairie, um, you know, her, her parents were, they were very much in it together you know, in everything that they did. Um, so it just really resonates with me, you know, it's got my mind really going on, um, you know, how some of the decisions we make today um, are, how they have consequences uh, for how we, how we even are interacting with our kids. But I think for the biblical vision of masculinity, I think at minimum, it has to include, you know, the idea of provision, which is something I, I heard you talk about um, protection to some degree, um, you know, being in the, the job of, of parenting together as a team. Like these are some of the things that, that we see in scripture uh, for what God calls men into um, building things, you know, cultivating something, building an aspect of culture. This is also part of what men do. If we don't have these things, if we don't have men that participate this way, it makes me wonder what the long-term consequence is going to be for civilization. I don't know. So yeah, and I, I think this is part of general revelation too. <laughs> um, there was a anthropologist who did the first ever uh, cross-cultural study of concepts of masculinity uh, a couple years ago. And what he found was all cultures hold in common certain views of masculinity, no, no matter what the differences are. And he called them the, the three Ps, provide, protect, and procreate, meaning have a family, you know, raise a family. Um, and, and he said, you know, no matter how much they differed on other things, those three Ps are pretty universal in terms of what people in every culture expect of men. And there was a, there was another um, st study 
that you all uh, that was really eye opening, and uh, it was done by a sociologist who um, he he found that men tend to have two conflicting scripts about what it means to be a man. He this this sociologist again has gone around the whole the whole world asking young men the same question, the same two questions um, in, in countries all around the world. And he says, uh, on the one hand, he'll ask the young men, um, what does it mean to be a good man? You know, if, if, you had, if there's a eulogy and people say he was a good man, what does that mean? Well, young men around the world know exactly what it means. It means honor, sacrifice, um, provision, uh, do the right thing. Look out for the little, little guy. I like that one. Look out for the little guy. <laughs> um, be a protector, be, be responsible, be generous, and so on. And then he would follow up with a second question. He'd say, well, what if I say to you, man up, be a real man? Hmm. And they'd say, oh, no, that's completely different. He would. They would say, in fact, I'll, I'll read this one to you, too. The, that's completely different. That means be tough, strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, suck it up. Play through pain, be competitive, get rich, get laid. In other words, most of the things we now call toxic the, mm -hmm. is, you know, the real man are the the traits that today we tend to call toxic. And what he says is most men really are caught between these two scripts. You know, I mean, we would say because they're made in God's image. <laughs> they do know what the good man is. They do know the three P's. Um but cult the culture that they're in presses them to be a real man defined in traits that we think are not necessarily so healthy. I mean, some of them, obviously, you, you want people to be able to hold together in a crisis. Uh, you, you want people to be strong in that sense, but you don't want them. Uh, that, that's a that's a temporary strategy. You also want them to know how to be caring and 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 nurturing. So that. I found I put that actually at the beginning beginning of the book because I found that that too disarmed a lot of people because they would say, "Are you attacking men or defending men?" Neither one. We're defending the good man. Of course, we should. The good man is basically you know God's image, and we're critiquing the real man. So and and that helped people to relax and say, "Okay, good. Okay, I'll I'll go along with that." When you made that distinction, it would often disarm a lot of the criticism, a lot of the tension. People wondering, you know, what's what? Like I said earlier, what? Whose side is she on? But we're on the side of the good man. <laughs> um, so, so I, I agree with you. Um, uh, you don't even have to look that much at scripture, although I'm not denying the scripture. But, but general revelation, men know what the good man is according to these studies. And these studies were not done by Christians, by the way. These are non-Christians, and they still found that men universally understand what the good man is. I think that's very interesting, you know, that men universally understand what the good man is, you know, because you get much um, conversation jargon around this idea that the idea of being a male is just something that we make up. You know, it's just, it's it's something a social that, construct. It's a social construct. People, yeah. you know, can pick and choose. There's nothing intrinsic to being a man or to being a woman. And yet your research finds that no men generally know. You know what I mean? There there's something about 
um, or, or at least some shared understanding of what it means to be a man. Yeah, they understand that their male strength is not just to, uh, designed to give them so they can get whatever they want. Mm-hmm. They understand that their unique male strengths are to provide, protect, and take care of, you know, the people they love. And, you know, I also start with biology in the book because that's general. That's how God reveals his truth to us as well. You know, God's word and God's world. And biology makes it pretty clear. Men are bigger and stronger because of testosterone. They're faster. Um, They have more fast twitch muscles. Actually, I learned that term, (laughs) fast twitch muscles. They can respond more quickly. Um, And they do tend to be more aggressive and competitive. And that's good. I mean, obviously, God made them that way. Biology, you know, is is part of general revelation where God tells us how he made us and how we should live. Um, and, and women have their own strengths. I think the reason people don't like biology is because usually the, the, the emphasis is on male strength. But women have strengths, too. Being able to bring forth life is of strength and yes. being able to take care of children. You know how much work, you know what kind of character it takes to, to take care of an infant? You have to be extremely sensitive. You have to be able to pick up nonverbal cues. You have to be willing to be interrupted no, no matter what time of day it is. No matter what you were doing, you have to be willing to be interrupted and take care of somebody else. There's incredible strength of character that goes into taking care of young children. So we need to be uh, focusing on these strengths and calling them strengths um, so that so that you know there's male strengths, but there's female strengths. And they are rooted in biology. Um, of course, you know, uh, that men and women's psychological traits overlap closely. You know, we're more alike than we are different. You know, if you have a bell curve, you know, for psychological traits, they overlap pretty closely. So so I don't want to overemphasize differences, but but we should be great, be grateful for those differences because God has made them made us that way. Yeah. And. I I love how you said that, you know, like we can be grateful for the differences because God has made us this way. It doesn't steal anything away from me as a woman to acknowledge who you have been created and designed by God to be as a man. Yeah. And actually, I wanted to go back to the Jennifer's question um, about the passivity. Yeah. Because I actually I had something to say about that, too. Sure. Historically, that came a little later. So um as men, as fa- husbands and fathers left the home, uh, the question is what happened to what happened to children and what happened to boys, especially. Mm. You know, for the first time, boys were not being raised day in and day out by their by their fathers. Uh, they had a lot of unsupervised time. What structure they did have was provided by women, you know, mothers and female teachers. The the most uh, the leading psychologist of the day. Put it this way, he said, never, never in American history have our boys been so wild and so half orphaned. Isn't that an interesting term? Half orphaned because their fathers weren't there. And so they were running wild. And um, what structure they did have was imposed by women. Well, boys could boys didn't like that. They didn't they they began to treat structure and rules and morality as um as, as things that were imposed standards imposed by women and therefore the real boy you know would would um would reject that structure would would rebel against it and uh it became more common to say oh boys are just wild anyway and you know boys will boys will be boys <laughs> in fact even the uh, literature of the time shifted 
up until now, the literature for children was very didactic. It would show very good children, you know, to give a, a model for children to be well-behaved. Well, now for the first time, there was a new genre. It was actually called bad boy books, mm. <laughs> and the, where the protagonist was the misbehaving boy. And you can probably guess the best known of those. What were the best known of those? <laughs> Mark Twain. <laughs> Oh, Tom yeah. Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. Yeah, okay. At the, at the end of Huckleberry Finn, he's going off. Uh, he's he's leaving his, uh, going going off into the wilds because he says Aunt Sally is going to civilize me, and oh, wow. I can't stand it. So civilizing is something done by old maid aunts. So there became an ethos of um, boys need to recover their wildness. Boys have become too soft. They've been raised by women. In fact, I don't know if you've heard this term, but it was, it was very common at the time to, to worry about over-civilization. Our boys are becoming over-civilized. We need to help them to be tough and rough again. So the the um, I think Jennifer's comment comes from the, the over-civilization stage where many, the boy, many boys, when they were no longer raised by their fathers and no longer had a day-in and day-out role model, I mean, girls, girls suffered too. But girls at least had their mother there as a role model. Boys no longer had a daily role model of what it mean, meant to be a man. And so the literature of the day began to be very concerned that boys were becoming soft and effeminate and um, that they needed some toughening up. And I think maybe some of that has come into the Christian church, too, that that, that period of when boys were, um, you know, when mas masculinity was almost seen as something negative, where boys were thought to be, um, you know, uh, it, they were being raised to be more like girls, <laughs> you know. Well, um, I would say that that is the dominant view now. Now we're not even trying to civilize. I mean, we're not trying to work on toughening up boys. We're we're just expecting them to become kind of effeminate and to act like women. Like we want our men to list like one of some of the advice I give to young married women friends is don't expect your husband to act like your girlfriend. He's not going to listen the same. He'll listen, he'll care, but he, he, don't try to turn your husband into your girlfriend. Like that's not how it's going to roll. But we kind of expect our men now, I think, to be sort of soft and, and passive and that that has become the vision for, you know, I, 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 my theory is that this is somewhat connected to reimagining Jesus as a kind of a soft man. And so we want to make our men kind of soft. I don't know. I could be wrong about that, but well, kind it, of this, I don't it, know. It might go back, you know, we started with how boys are falling behind in school. Um, there's a, a, a guy wrote a book, um, you, uh, on on boys falling behind in school, and he said, um, "Here's how he put it: um, Girls are the gold standard, and boys are seen as defective girls." And, mm -hmm. and I thought that was a pretty good summary of how they're treated in school. And uh, I, I think that may be where it's coming from. As um, even today, most boys are raised by women. They're raised by their mothers. They're raised by female teachers. When do they ever encounter a male teacher? Maybe, maybe in high school, <laughs> maybe in youth group, but it much much of their growing up years are spent with women, and so 
that does cause a bit of an identity crisis, I think. And I, I agree with you that it's something that the church hasn't really addressed. Well, here's what we're doing, though. We're, we're splitting. <laughs> you know, on the one hand, there's a, like you said, the, well, the Victorian Jesus, gentle and mild, yeah. <laughs> meek and mild. <laughs> um, and, and that was part of the Victorian age. But then we're getting the re- reaction against that, you know, the Andrew Tate and the, the men who are almost going to the opposite extreme. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm concerned about both. I'm concerned about the opposite extreme as well, because um, in the secular world, the opposite extreme has bec- is becoming, uh, well, it, it populates the manosphere. You, you're familiar with that term, the manosphere. Yeah. <laughs> the manosphere, all of these men's rights groups and the MGTOW men going their own way, you know, men who are swearing off any relationship with women except maybe sex. Um, and the red, you know, red pill and the incels and the, and the, volcil, the, vol, the voluntary celibates and the involuntary celibates. And there's quite a active manosphere that is attracting men, including, you know, some Christian men. There are some Christian men's groups now. Um, and I, I, I would, I have a whole chapter on Darwinism and its impact on concepts of masculinity because the idea that you know men should be wild and barbarian and recover their true um that their, their true self is really you know is is this uncivilized beast within a lot of that came from darwinism the idea that to try to find and it was a reaction against victorianism of course it was a reaction against uh, the jesus, jesus meek and mild but what it did is it taught many men that it it almost reversed the idea of masculinity. Up until then, ever since the ancient Greeks, there was the notion that um, true character was that your your moral will and your reason and your spirit, you know, controls your animal appetites, your physical appetites. Well, this almost reversed it because Darwin said, "No, no, you know, you are at core an animal. Right. You are at core, a, you know, the, the beast within." That in the Tarzan books, for example, um, af- even after he's learned European customs, Tarzan says to Jane, I am, this is a direct quote, I am a wild beast at heart still. You know, he still prefers to rip off his clothes and wear a loincloth and eat raw meat that he has killed himself. And a lot of men have picked up that, that strain of our, care, of our culture as well, that somehow men need to get back in touch with that wild barbarian inner self. And that has also come from you know, a very secular understanding of masculinity, um, largely influenced by Darwinism. I think this, this is really interesting because it it goes. It's making me think how important it is for pastors and even youth pastors to create, you know, a clear vision about being a Christian man and being a Christian woman, and that. Um, Because there are these competing visions in the culture and uh, some of them are somewhat compatible with biblical Christianity and others are not. And we need to create an, um, you know, a a better alternative and, and a biblically informed alternative. But I like what you said earlier about kind of the biblical 
vision for manhood. Susanna Turner um, on YouTube is asking the question, if, if men are more sensitive, artistic, and great communicators, has society caused men to question their sexuality, assuming they are gay, because they're not in the scripted idea of what a man is? And I think that that's a, a, a common rejoinder. But I think you kind of answer that in saying, you're not, you're not saying that a, a, a good man is necessarily someone who goes out and kills his own food, but you are saying he does things like um, protect and provide and procreate. So if he's artistic or more sensitive, that doesn't make him effeminate. What makes him a good man is that he does these other things. Am I kind of hearing you right in that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I did deal with that a lot in my earlier book, Love Thy Body, because yeah. the chapter on transgenderism in particular, you know, boys who boys who might might um, get caught up in the transgender movement obviously are going to be the more sensitive, sweet, sweet, gentle, relational. <laughs> um, and so I, I really deal with that more in that book. But let me let me um, there's a cool summary by a historian, again, not a Christian. I love it the way these non-Christians sometimes see things so well. So his name is Peter Peter Stearns, and he wrote, wrote a book called Be a Man. And he's a historian, I think, at George Mason University. At any rate, he wrote a book and he said, a culture's concept of manhood is derived from its concept of God. So he says, take the polytheistic cultures. And like the uh, ancient Greeks with their gods on Mount Olympus uh, or the Norse gods. He said uh, the, the polytheistic gods, uh, here's how he puts it, they fought, they winched, they they do, demanded military valor. And so polytheistic cultures tend to exalt the heroic virtues. You know, the real man is a warrior. Well, there's some truth to that. Um, but it's incomplete. And then he says, well, what about monotheistic cultures? Well, that, there's one kind of monotheism where God is completely transcendent and separate, which is most um, exemplified by Islam. I quote an Islamic scholar saying, um, in Islam, God is not seen, God would not condescend to have a relationship of love with mere mortals, <laughs> direct quote. Um that that he, that that would see, that would be repugnant to God. So in Islam, uh, it's a kind of monotheism that stresses pure power. You know, so be, to be a man is to exercise power. Then he says, "What about Judaism?" Well, in Judaism, God does have a relationship with His people. He's in covenant relationship. Um, well, Jeremiah, uh, I I will give them a heart to know me. So God does want to be known by His people. So in in Judaism, God is a loving father. To be a man is to be a loving father. And then this historian says, when Christianity arose from within Judaism, it brought new complexity. <laughs> he says, um, Jesus, Jesus introduced the notion of servant leadership. He says, no other, no other religion has the notion of servant leadership. Um, and he quotes, you know, Jesus saying, I, I came not to be served, but to serve. And he said, for the first time, things like gentleness and love and compassion became masculine virtues. And he said, uh, Christianity praised men that had virtues that had 
previously been associated mostly with women. And so Christianity has this fullness. It, you know, it can take all of these definitions. Um, you know, every every part of us, you know, all of human nature is made in God's image. So in Christianity, we can have the fullness of all of these definitions. And and men can be, men can have um all the characteristics of God's own image. They don't have to choose. They can be whatever God has made them to be. And I think it has a much richer, fuller definition of masculinity. That's, gosh, I think when you when you bring the biblical component into it and, you know, the definition of masculinity and how full and rich it is when we take it from the scripture, you know what I mean? It just, it, at, like at our ministry at CFBU, we always say that the gospel offers a better hope, that Christianity has a better hope. And that's just what I hear you saying. It's like that Christianity truly does offer a better hope. And when we consider the conversation of masculinity um, or, yeah, just just relationship with men in general, like and, and how we participate within our own sexes, Christianity does offer a better hope. As we wrap, we have two more questions. Um, two more questions that we'll have time to get to. The first question says, um, what about par parents? What, what advice would you have for parents? My husband and I are raising two young boys. This is from Jessica Brown on Facebook. What advice would you give to parents who want to encourage their sons to embrace a godly masculinity in the midst of this culture, which is with, um, with so much confusion over gender issues? Yeah, I, you know, in a book like this, you have to have some answers, you know, some practical solutions. So two things. One is I do have a chapter on history. Uh, well, let me start by saying, obviously, the most important thing is fathers getting back in close relationship with their sons. You know, can we in any way recover some of the closeness that men had with their sons in the pre-industrial age? Um, you know, can we work around at all the industrial, you know, the work structure of our own day? And once again, let men be fully engaged with their kids. There's a, I, I quote one Christian psychologist who said, we're not going to have a better class of men until we have a better class of fathers, mm. because it's fathers raising the next generation that's going to make the biggest difference in terms of creating healthy masculinity. So first I do a little history again, because we all know that fathers are ridiculed and mocked in the media. You know, they're always the, the doofus dad. And so I, I get a little bit like, okay, where did this come from? Why did we decide that we should, you know, make fun of fathers? Again, it goes back to the Industrial Revolution. Once fathers were out of the home all day, they did get out of touch with their family. They got out of touch with what was happening with their kids. They no longer knew what their kids were up to. They no longer knew what the rules were in the home because the mothers were, you know, enforcing the rules. They never, they didn't. They felt out of touch and irrelevant. And already in the 19th century, you get books saying, you know, what's a father for anyway? They don't seem to do they don't seem to do anything besides, you know, bring home a paycheck. People began already denigrating fathers because they weren't home. And so they weren't in close contact with their families anymore. And that's so it's important for us to know that's where it came from. And then I do have a whole chapter on. How can we make the workplace more flexible? And of course, a lot of this is anecdotal because I, is, is stories. There's no, you know, single principle. It's lots of stories of people, fathers who found ways to be home more, to work two days a week, a week from home, or to leave early. I have a father who leaves early two days a week to coach his son's basketball and soccer games. 
Um, the pandemic brought a lot of fathers home. Uh, one of my graduate students was married to an IT prof professional um, who came home with the pandemic. And all of a sudden, he's there to help with the homeschooling. All of a sudden, he's there to help drive a kid to soccer. It's like he, he picked up so much of the family responsibilities that his wife was able to go back to uh, doing more of her work. She's a she's an opera singer. Wow. <laughs> my, my student was an opera singer. Uh, she started a voice studio. And so the whole family is benefiting from her increased income. And they'll, oh, and, and the time that he used to spend commuting, he now spends praying with his wife every morning. And they're like, mm. we're never going back to a cubicle. <laughs> uh, the New York Times just had an article, by the way. Uh, I loved it. They said, um, father, it said fathers found that during the pandemic, they got closer to their kids and they don't want to lose it. That was in the New York Times. I loved it. Anyway, so I do have a, a, a chapter on, you know, are there ways that we can bring more flexibility to the workplace? And the pandemic, you know, the silver lining of the pandemic was more and more fathers. One, one study I found said 65% of fathers don't want to go back full time. You know, they want to be home as, if they have children. Um, they want to be able to be home more, work from home, have more flexible hours so that they can keep that closeness with, with their kids that they gained. To follow up to that, do you have any thoughts about like churches or, you know, youth pastors, pastors, youth leaders, you know, pe people who might be in relationship with kids who don't have fathers? Because oh, I yeah. hear, you know, a lot of the conversation is we need to get the fathers back in the home, but you also have kids who have no relationship with their fathers. Yeah, that's a good point. Yes, I do. I do talk about that in the book. I do say, you know, fatherless kids should be a primary ministry of every church. I don't know if it's primary. I don't know if they see it that way right now. I think if you want to overcome toxic masculinity, you've got to raise the next generation with warm, loving, uh, and, and, you know, morally directive relationship with men, father figures, substitute fathers, Oh, yes. Uh, thanks for raising that, because otherwise, you know, if you don't have the father in the home, you feel kind of, well, I'm left out then. No, the uh -huh. church really needs to step up and make this a major part of its ministry. Well, Preach, historically, Preach. Yeah, because historically, Christians were known for orphan ministry. And mm -hmm. to me, the modern day orphans are a lot of these kids who are growing up without a father in the home. They don't have close connection with their fathers. This is an area where I think there needs to be more conversation and more uh, coaching and ministry guidance for youth pastors and on even the church as a whole, local churches as a whole, of how are we going to build a culture to bring up our men and our young boys into men? Because one way or the other, our, our boys are going to be discipled. They're either going to be discipled by the culture and catechized by the culture, or they're going to be discipled by us. And so I think that having that conversation of what can we do in our local churches to build a culture of helping these, these boys grow into men, even if they don't have fathers in the home, this to me is right in line with the historic Christian tradition of orphan ministry, which is an actual biblical justice issue that's actually <laughs> mentioned in the Bible. 
lots of verses on taking care of widows and orphans. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. Uh, final question here. Uh, Seth on YouTube is asking, do you have any thoughts about toxic femininity? That, you know, what what is that and how does it impact sometimes good men? Yeah, um, well, I do start with those very, very toxic examples <laughs> um, of attacks on men. But I, for, for space, I couldn't do everything. So, sure. you know, um, in the... I, this is this is my book for men <laughs> you know I, this is my book for men um so i did i do address mostly men and to be honest um um the the two chapters on domestic violence hmm. i i was um i personally didn't realize how much domestic violence is primarily a, ma- a, a problem among men i mean men are bigger and stronger <laughs> if they if they get into a fight who's going to get hurt it's going to be the woman did you know that 50% of of murders of women, half of all women who are murdered are murdered by domestic partners? That's husbands, former husbands, boyfriends, former boyfriends. Half. So I I I did become a little bit more concerned about toxic masculinity when I got into those chapters. Because mm-hmm. I, I I admit that in to be balanced, I do give some examples of toxic women. I do. I give some examples of, of women who are verbally abusive, um, uh, not not generally physically abusive, because you know they're smaller and they're weaker, unless they have a weapon. <laughs> One of my students said, "Well, I knew this girl who had a knife." Okay, okay. <laughs> if they have a weapon, but I otherwise, hope it wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> But the majority of the vast majority of uh, domestic violence is perpetuated by men, and so um, more than I more than I realized before I did the research on this these chapters. So um, so I, I that's what I focused on because numerically speaking, you know, statistically speaking, it is as one psychologist one Christian psychologist put it, um, it is primarily a male problem because it's ninety percent males <laughs> who commit domestic violence. So, uh, so I, I just, I don't, I, I don't do a whole lot with toxic women. Maybe that's the next book. <laughs> but no, I also I, think that it, it, I mean, in looking at the book, you're addressing a lot of things that culture is calling toxic that actually might not be toxic according to a biblical standard. What is addressed in the book regarding women are things that like when I say, you know, or if I, I would never say this, but to say, you know, we should, you know, get rid of all men. We can exterminate men. No, that that's really toxic. That, that's that's toxic problem. femininity. That, that yeah. is toxic femininity. But to say that, um, you know, men working or men wanting to, you know, intri- having this intrinsic desire to lead that is that that or to provide or to protect that that's toxic. I think those are two different things that are, you know, being addressed. One is an innate you know, something that's innate within a man that I think culture is saying is toxic, which isn't toxic. You know, it's part of God's design for men. And then the other thing is something that is truly toxic that we should address as believers because of the Imago Dei and, you know, men having designed by God and things like that. Yes. And that's why I start with a book. I mean, uh, as soon as I get past the opening examples, uh, I start with 
let's affirm what's good about masculinity. Yes, yes, men are bigger, stronger, more aggressive, more more testosterone. These are good. <laughs> uh, it's very Amen. important to start with that. And and even if later you say, well, the secular the secular script for men tends to overdo dominance, entitlement, um, uh, some some of the more negative traits. That's the secular script. That's not the biblical script. Mm-hmm. And that, that's another thing I do very carefully in the book, as I really make a careful distinction between the biblical script and the secular script, so that I hope my readers always know which one I'm talking about. So I'm affirming biblical manhood, um, and I'm hoping that I help people to think more critically about the secular script. You know, what's good about, you know, like you said, uh, some of it's some of it's intrinsic to men and then some of it's secular. I mean, we live in, we live in a secular society. Should we, we, we should not be surprised that secularism has produced some negative uh, definitions of manhood. Um, like I said, to, to, to just to reiterate the, the, the impact of Darwinism, making men into, you know, the beast at heart, the barbarian. No, uh, it has, it has, um, persuaded a lot of men and here's why christian men need to be um critical thinkers too because in in their attempt to counter the uh, over the the power of feminism you know feminism has had a tremendous amount of cultural power it has there's no doubt about it and in order to counter that some christian men sort of reach over and grabs parts of the secular script without really thinking critically about it so that's that's where we need to keep the biblical script and the secular script separate. That's super helpful. And once again, I want to let people know to go pre-order Nancy Piercy's book. Uh, it's called "The Toxic War on Masculinity: How Christianity so How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes," and it will drop at the end of June. So now's the time to order your copy. And again, this is a great help that notifies the publisher. Uh, It lets Amazon know that this is content that is important to us and that we value this kind of research. So um, make sure that you go get your order in now. Thank you so much, Nancy, for coming on and having this conversation with us. There's so much good feedback in the comments as to how helpful this has been to people. We really appreciate you um, going in, even though it's been a little controversial. I know it's been a a bumpy road at times in doing the book. Thank you for persevering because this is a very needed conversation. Well, thanks for having me. It's been really delightful. And I'm, I'm glad. I love it when we have uh, questions from the audience and you find out what people are thinking. So I appreciate that. Oh, very good. Thank thanks you so for much. being here. Yes. Thank you. God bless you and your work. Thank you. Thank you. So much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Good night. Wow. That was an amazing conversation. We've One we've been wanting to do for a very long time. Um, let's go to a quick break and hear from our friends at Birmingham Theological Seminary. And then our friends at Impact 360, we'll see you back in two minutes with some final thoughts. The heart of BTS is first and foremost to be faithful, faithful to the word of God, to the sufficiency of scripture, to knowing we serve a sovereign Lord. The second component of the heart of BTS is accessibility. We're affordable. 
We're flexible. We work with students to help them achieve goals. This isn't our journey. It's your journey for serving the Lord. It's your journey that God has called you to. So we pray that while God expands and grows the opportunities that we have, that we never lose sight to provide quality, reformed theological education, faithfully and accessibly, so that we can serve the local church by building leaders for His kingdom. I'd always heard in church, like, go and make disciples, and they'd always say that verse, and I'm like, I don't really know what that looks like at all. And then when I got here, they taught me like everything I was curious to know about, like progressive Christianity and how to talk to an atheist and how to go about witnessing to someone without it being overly preachy or insincere. And that helped me so much. It's just been such an awesome week, you know, going through these questions and really diving into them. And not just with me, but other Christians. It's not like an individual thing, it's a together thing. We're really strengthening our relationship with the Lord personally, but also together. We have been given the greatest gift. We have been given life. And Propel has really made me realize once again how important it is to share that gift with the millions of people out there who don't have that gift that's just ripe for the taking. Okay, once again, you can find out more by visiting our friends at Birmingham Theological Seminary. Uh, go to bts.education and Impact 360. Now, I understand, Monique, that our friends at Impact 360, their gap year program is already full for That's 23, 24. Crazy. Um, their two-week summer camp, already full. But they still have a few slots for the one-week high school summer camp, Propel. So that's what we've been telling people about. But don't don't sleep on it because yeah. it's things are filling up. So, and it's such important training, you know, to to get young people um, grounded in their worldview. You want to talk about you know, a way to war back against the culture and to be able to raise young men and women um, in the in the word of God and in uh, a, a worldview that they should be walking in. Well, Impact 360 would be a, you know, a great option to be able to do that, to be able to speak into your child's life, to ground them so that as they grow, they are less susceptible to the culture's influences. Yeah. Well, walking away tonight um, from the show, I'm just wondering what are some of your takeaways? Uh, I know you've read Nancy Piercy's book. You're an endorser on the book. Um, what are some things that maybe you went into that um, that you've that you've changed your mind about, or something some things that you've learned? I don't know that I changed my mind about a lot. Um, I learned a lot about the industrial revolution. Okay. And how men were, you know, taken out of the home for this unique role, something that hadn't been done before because men generally worked in the home and were, or, you know, at least if, if they had an, an outside shop, everybody worked at the outside shop together. And so um, just the importance of the family 
it's it's important to have a father in the life of the child and you know not someone who comes home and interacts with the child for a couple hours and then now everybody's sleeping things like that but you know how are you spending time on the weekends with your child how are you having you know those deep conversations that that are impactful with your child so the father just plays so, such an important role and um i think that's something that i really walked away with is looking at um the importance of the father. And then I, and I also had to ask the question of with all this male bashing, I'm like, I, I like men. Why am I still single, Krista? What's going on? Because I hear I'm an advocate. I'm walking around like, y'all are my advocate. Every while while the rest of the world is hating. What's going on? Help me. Okay. So that was going to be you my question. You can question. send Monique your um, suggestions for fixing her up. No, no, no. You can, send, you can send those to Kevin Briggins. <laughs> oh, yeah. Send those to Kevin Briggins. He'll be pre I'm going to have him that. be my, my, my pre-screener. He knows. <laughs> right. he, he knows. He's not here for the okie doke. And I know Kevin's on the stream, so I'm just... Yeah. <laughs> what was your takeaway? Uh, definitely, like, my eyes were opened in thinking about the differences between... Um, Bible-believing men or more conser- theologically conservative men, gen- uh, I don't know what you want to call them, genuine Christians, and those mm-hmm. who are on like the periphery of Christian culture, nominal Christians, and secular men that, you know, Christian men who really have been regenerated and um, are truly Holy Spirit-filled and trying to walk with the Lord, they just show up to life differently. Mm-hmm. I-, I think that that's a powerful um, thing for me to be aware of that I, I just didn't really have an awareness of before. And it, it, I'm so grateful, um, in my own life in growing up without a father, being able to be in, in 30 years of marriage with my husband and seeing how he has been so diligent in, um, good times and hard times in parenting our children with me and being in it with me. And I'm, you know, it it uh, made me a little grateful tonight. You know that when my husband lost his job in twenty or two thousand nine, that was rough. It was hard times, but I think, like Nancy said, the blessing of the pandemic, uh, for me, the blessing of of that season was that my husband started a business that he was able to take my kids to all the time, and that they learned a good work ethic. That they they got to be with their dad on a regular basis, um, going to work with him in the business from a very young age. And um, it made me grateful for that. I hadn't really thought about that, that all the time that he spent with them as they work side by side, and it was hard labor. It was hard physical labor. And um, you know what? That probably had more of an impact on my kids than I've, than I've recognized before and just made me grateful for all of the, the journey with my husband and seeing all that he's done and how he's stayed in it um, with us. And it, like I said, good times and bad. And it, it maybe it just stands out to me from being a kid without a dad and seeing that. I don't know. Uh, that was kind of some of my takeaways. Cool. Well, yes, we are all very grateful for Bob, the button pusher Bontrager. All right. Oh. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we thank we you so much for being see with you us tonight. In two weeks. Yeah. We're going to be doing our Easter show in two weeks. We will be live. 
and we're going to be looking at the archaeology of Easter. Yes, and, and I will actually be home. Yes, God willing, uh, Monique will be home by then, and uh, we'll be talking about kind of the history and historical evidence surrounding Easter with Brian Wendell um, from Associates for Biblical Research. It's going to be a great conversation. Some of you may have caught our conversation about the archaeology of Christmas a few months ago. So we're going to do a similar discussion, but we're going to bring him on all the things so Monique can meet him. And I think it's going to be a great time. So we're going to see you in two weeks for the live show. All right. Thank you so much, everyone. You guys have a good night and God bless. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week. Thank you.